It is a joy and a privilege to go to the Word of God today and continue to look at this series that we have taken on in the Gospel of John with this theme, Life in Jesus, the Son of God. Because that's John's whole thrust and his whole uh, um, goal here throughout the book of John is to show that this man that he spent three of his three years of his life with, and then the rest of his life he would give in service to him, is that this was not just a man, this is the Messiah, this is the Son of God, this is God himself in human form, and he is the Savior of the world. And so he has written, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this gospel with this end, to show us exactly who Jesus is through what he says and what he does and how he fulfills those things. And, and, and today, as we turn the page into John chapter 2, we begin to see some of, one of the things that Jesus does to show us that he is God. This is, in John chapter 2, the primary display of Jesus' creative power. And by that we mean the first miracle that John records here. There's about eight of these that John takes time to show us from the life of Jesus. And we know that that's not all that Jesus does. In fact, there are actually 35 different miracles recorded throughout the, the four different Gospels. And as John says at the end of his, at the end of his uh, book, at the end of his Gospel, that's not even all of them. Because if, if everything was to be written down that Jesus did, John said that he supposed the world itself could not contain those things that will be written. And that is a very important thing for us to remember that these are just selected pericopes from the life of Jesus that show us who he is and they point us and drive us to this end that we would see Jesus as he is and we would trust him with our hearts and our lives. Let's look today at John chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding and when they ran out of wine the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it, had come from, where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Father, we are so thankful now for these few minutes we have set aside to consider your word together, where we have sung and we have given you praise and honor and glory, and we have already said it's been good to be in your house today, to worship you, and and to sing unto you. Lord, help us now to quiet our hearts and our minds to realize that that the most important thing we can do today is hear and and take in and, and apply to our hearts through the help of the Holy Spirit your word. And we ask that you would convict us of our sin today, 
that you would show us those things which, which you have been working on in our hearts and lives as Christians to, to get out of our lives and, and to live in a way that would honor you. Lord, I pray for one who may be here today who doesn't know you as Savior, that you would show them their need of salvation from sin and the hope of eternal life that's found only in Jesus Christ. And may we be overwhelmed and, and, and awed by the power of Jesus today. And may we see him as he is, our creator, redeemer, and king. And may we walk out of this place different than when we came in because we have heard your truth proclaimed. We have heard it applied to our hearts through your Holy Spirit. And we have, uh, we have responded in a way that, uh, that, that engages with it and seeks to, to implement these things into our lives with your help. In your name we pray. Amen. What you believe has inseparable bearing on the rest of your life. And by that I mean that, that your actions will always follow your heart, your core beliefs. If we can illustrate it mundanely, if you believe that gas prices are going to go up significantly tomorrow, I don't know if you've ever experienced that in recent history, okay, then what are you going to do? You're probably going to go out tonight and you're going to fill up the tank, Right? If you, if you believe that you need to spend more time with your family, then you're going to adjust your hours or you're going to take some days off and spend time with them. If, if you believe that you're going to need some money to come for an upcoming project or a bill or some expenses, then you're going to hold off on buying that new boat or that other new toy that, that, to make sure you have enough money. And if you don't act on what you say you believe, the question is what? Well, do you really believe that? Because, it's, because, as I just said, your beliefs always inform the actions of your life. Stated beliefs without resulting actions lead to us questioning the validity of the stated beliefs. It is like that in the most commonplace and the most crucial parts of our lives. A good friend of mine said it this way. You do what you do and you say what you say because you think what you think. But you think what you think because you believe what you believe about God, God's word, and yourself. You cannot separate your actions and your words from what you, what, what you believe to be true in your heart. And John's gospel hits the, the most crucial thing that we have to come to grips with is what we believe about God and what we believe about Jesus Christ. And John's gospel is littered with the importance of what we believe about Jesus. If we believe that he is the Son of God and the Christ, the Messiah, the, the deliverer from sin, then we will find life in him. If we believe, though, that he's merely a good man, we may be intrigued by what he's done, but we will continue on in our sin, hurtling towards an eternity that's separated from him. What you believe about Jesus is life-defining. And so, John has recorded for you and me what Jesus did so that we would be well-informed on where to place our belief that would bring us to that point of you must make a decision about what you believe about, about God, about Jesus. John recorded a selected number of Jesus' miracles to inform our belief. And we find the first one here in our passage today in this primary display of Jesus' creative power as God. And what we see here is that, that Jesus' transformation of substances with nothing more than his word and unspoken thoughts displays his creative power as God. 
What you and I are going to run into today in this passage is, is nothing short of what you read in the very first pages of Scripture where it talks about in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And how did he do that? With nothing short of, of his word. And just like God did that and Jesus is God there, he does so here in this miracle and displays his power as God. As, as the one who rules all things and as the Messiah who came to redeem men from sin. So let's look here today at the story in the life of Jesus and see first the problem that occurs in verses 1 through 3. It says there on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And we open this chapter, we open this, this pericope of Jesus' life, and, and it specified that, that this is three days after the close of chapter 1. And, and in the last part of Jesus' life, in the last section we saw, that Jesus had gained two new disciples in, in Philip and Nathaniel. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And this brings the, the total number of disciples in Jesus' ministry to, to either five or six. Five we know for sure. Peter and Andrew and John and Philip and Nathaniel. And, and some believe that, that, that there's a good chance that John has already gone and, and talked to James, his brother, as well, and brought him to Jesus. And if that's, if that's the case, there's six. The, the number of five or six doesn't really have any bearing on, on the story here, but just something to keep in mind. These men have not given up their occupations to, to fully follow Jesus full time, but they are his disciples nonetheless. They are those who learn from him as they, as they go along. And so, three days after the calling of Philip and Nathaniel, Jesus and these men make their way to a place called Cana. Now, it's interesting when you study the location of Cana, that location isn't entirely known, but we do know this, it was about three days away for them to travel because it took them three days to get there from the end of the last story to this one. And the occasion for traveling to this place is a wonderful occasion. It's, it's a wedding. And we think of weddings today. I've been to, to two different weddings in my family this year, and, and let me tell you, they're always a big event, right? And if you're closely involved and tied into a wedding, there's a lot that goes on, right? I tell my wife all the time, I would marry her a million times over, but I would skip the wedding, right? Just because there are so many things that go into that, right? That's really bad coming from a pastor, isn't it? Okay? And so in Palestine at this time, these were actually really, really big events in a, in a city, in a village. These celebrations in first century Palestine could sometimes last up to a week, and the wedding feast and the ceremony came at the end of what's commonly known as the betrothal period, when a man and a soon-to-be wife could be separated by nothing short of a divorce, though they did not live together as a married couple yet. And at the end of the celebration, the ceremony, the wedding ceremony would take place, and the couple would then begin their married life together. And so this is a cause of great celebration in a family. Many are invited. Often, you know, the, the whole village would be invited to take place in that. And Jesus and his disciples are invited to this occasion. And we, we, we find out that it's, it's obvious that, that this happy couple that's involved here is somehow tied to Jesus and his family, whether it's by relationship, a, fam, a familial relationship, or they're really good friends, because not only is Jesus and his disciples there, but we're told that Mary, his, his mother, is also there as well. And so his disciples and him, Jesus and his disciples, make their way to their wedding, to, what, to the wedding which they've been invited. And we know that, that weddings in this culture were held on Wednesdays, unless it was the remarriage of a widow, which would be held on a Thursday. 
And though it is certainly not the main thrust of this parable, I just want to stop and observe something for a minute. Can you, can you just uh, look and appreciate with me the amazing opportunity to have the Son of God physically attend your wedding? I mean, talk about no pressure, right? But what an amazing thing that is. True, those who invited Jesus most certainly had no idea who he was as the Messiah. They didn't understand when they invited him to the wedding that they were inviting the Messiah, the Son of God, and God himself to be part of that. But but still, what an amazing and incredible thought that is. God, who ordained marriage as one man and one woman together for life, is physically present for this couple's wedding. And indeed, God is present at all times and in all places, right? There is not a wedding ceremony on this earth that takes place that God is not present at. But physically, to have Jesus there is, is an incredible thing. And, and I, I think if we understood this more, and we understood more the sacred union of man and wife before a holy God, we would perhaps better understand the strong views on what marriage is and what it shouldn't be that God has. Because God is the ordainer of marriage. He's the one who set it up. He's the one who tells us what it's supposed to look like and what it's not supposed to look like. But what's interesting is Jesus comes to this wedding, and, and obviously there's the events and the festivities that go on. This wedding does not go completely as planned. You ever been to a wedding that didn't go completely as planned? There's a wedding disaster that takes place in the first part of verse 3. You read this. And when they, had run, when they ran out of wine, and we read that statement and we think, okay, it's just moving the story forward. But, but understand, that, that's a very um, alarming statement, it's a disaster here. And we learn that, that wine is a staple in the culture at this time and because the grapes would be harvested and they would be juiced. But then understand, in first century Palestine, they don't have refrigerators like you and I do. And so you know how long it takes grape juice to ferment in a culture like that? It doesn't take very long at all. Now, do understand that what they would do, they would take this wine, it would often be diluted three to ten times its strength by water in order to, to, to avoid or, or to help uh, limit this or stem the result of, of intoxication because that was strongly spoken against in the scriptures. And remember, Jesus is here in Israel and they have the law of God. And here at this wedding, where the groom's family has taken on the responsibility of hosting the guests, uh, we see this, this disaster that strikes that they run out of wine. Because the groom's family was, was responsible to, to provide all the food and the drink, and it's become a very serious situation. Because if you run out of these provisions during the feast, it, it really is an embarrassment to the family. And so what, what was a wonderful event is on the brink of becoming a serious social faux pas to this young couple and actually would affect them as they begin their new life together in the culture in which they live. And so... We set that up to help us understand this, that Jesus' miracle this day is not just something that's cooked up to amaze people or just to awe people with his power. Like every other miracle that Jesus performs, it meets a very practical and very personal need. You know, oftentimes it's not, it's not hard to see when it comes to uh, maybe him, him healing a blind person or, or one who couldn't speak or walk. And we say, well, that's a very practical need. It's a very personal need. This is just as practical and personal as anything else. Because in the culture in which, which he lived and, and in which they, they, they carried out these, these ceremonies, uh, this is a very serious thing for this couple. And so now we see the one 
involved in bringing this to the Lord and the transition in Jesus' own family relationships that take place even at this wedding and during this um, miracle. And we see the request that's brought in the second part of verse 3 all the way into verse 5. And we see there really is a a new role that Jesus, Jesus takes on in relationship to his mother. It says, when they had run out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So it is here we learn, as we mentioned before, we begin to see unfold the attendance and the place of service that Jesus' family member, his mother, his earthly mother Mary, has in his life or has in this wedding. Because she comes to Jesus stating this problem, there is no wine. And, and what we gather is that there's a good chance that Mary is involved in some way with the, the, the dissemination of the food and the drink and that sort of thing. Because it's highly unlikely at this point they've told everybody they've run out of wine. They're trying to figure out what to do still. And so it was here that we must deduce Mary's reasoning for this statement to Jesus as well. Now, many scholars believe at this point in Jesus' life that Joseph, Jesus' earthly adopted father, has already died. And so, Mary has already come to leaning on Jesus for help in her life, as any widow woman would do with her oldest son. Joseph was never mentioned again in the scriptures after the family's trip to Jerusalem when Jesus was 12. And so we began to, to, to do, and we know by the time that, that Jesus died on the cross three years later, Joseph was dead. So many believe it's already happened, that Joseph already, has already passed away. And so, but, but what we see here is, is from Jesus' response in verse 4, it is clear what she is asking is beyond just someone going to the one she depends on. This is not Mary just going to Jesus because that's what she always does. She is wishing him to do more to help her figure out a plan. And we see Jesus' new role defined even to his own earthly mother here. We read verse 4, and we begin, maybe you're taken aback. I don't know if you've ever read this parable or this, 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 this miracle and been taken aback by what Jesus says to his mother. Because the words, if we're honest, sound very harsh to our modern Western ears. It begins with that word, woman, right? And, 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 and let me ask you, gentlemen who are married, if you address your wife as such, how would that go for you, right? Maybe I should re- address it this way. Sons, if you address your mother that way, how is that going to go for you? It's not going to go very well. Why? Because it's very disrespectful, right? But again, understand, we have translated here to our modern Western culture is totally different than what was there. Actually, that term woman there in the, in the original was actually a very respectful term. It was actually, it was a very polite way to address someone. Now, that being said, it, it was not an intimate form of address. It did not reflect the warmness of a, of a mother-son relationship, okay? So in that instance, you know, we're correct. It's, it's not typically how sons address their mothers. But it's also not, not a rude statement, it's also not a, not a call down or a, a looking down on someone. It's not condescending. But there is a distancing going on here, and it's something that's not a wrong thing in the life of Jesus. Consider Mary with me for a minute, if you would. Mary has heard, observed, and experienced more than anyone else in the life of Jesus. She has, she has had the angel 
who appeared to her and told her she would conceive and bear a son, though she was a virgin. Then the angel also made it clear that this would be a work of God in her, and that the son she bore would be named Jesus, though he'd be called the Son of God. Mary observed the reactions of the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth. She and Joseph heard the declarations of Simeon and Anna when they took him to the temple. They received the wise men into their home with their gifts. They observed the growing up years of Jesus. They saw what happened in that day in the temple when he was 12 years old when he said to his mother and father, I must be about my father's business. And she pondered these things in her heart. As a mother... She knew Jesus best. She surely understood who Jesus was, who he would be, what, what he may, may not understood the entire plan, right? But she understood that, that Jesus was the Son of God. But as a human, she needed Jesus as her Messiah just as much as anyone else. Never forget that. Unlike Most earthly mothers, Mary could not play a card of family loyalty or favoritism to get things out of Jesus. Jesus was not beholden to her desires and wills, but to those of his heavenly Father. And what we deduce here, this is what Mary is asking for. She's not asking for Jesus to go to the local store or marketplace or whatever and help them with this problem. What she's asking for him to do is to reveal himself as the Messiah. She asked him to show others who he is and why he has come. But that full revelation was not to come yet. That's what Jesus meant when he said, my hour has not yet come. When would that hour come? It would come when Jesus was suspended between heaven and earth on a Roman cross. And so Jesus uses an idiomatic expression here of, what does your concern have to do with me? To show the distance that must take place as he enters his public ministry. That he must now be beholden to God the Father alone and the mission that he has been sent on as a Messiah of Israel. It is not dishonor. He is not dishonoring his earthly mother. But, But it is, at least in some ways, a mild rebuke nonetheless for Mary for her longing for Jesus to fully reveal himself when the time has not yet come. That that's not up to her. That's up to God. The day would one day come, and it would certainly come in a way that many did not expect. But what's interesting is how Mary responds. In the midst of that, there is a response of faith placed in her son, not as a man, but as the God-man, as the Son of God and God himself. We see Mary's faith in verse 5. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. So she, she turns to those who are serving there at the wedding and gives them instructions. And, and it's, it's an interesting thing to note. This word that we have translated servants is not talking about a servant who's owned by someone else, but it's talking about someone in a serving position. It's actually the same, uh, the, the root word is the same Greek word from which we derive our word deacon and how that describes the serving role in the church. And so these are those who are there uh, filling in that role and serving other people there at the celebration. Most likely these are friends or family charged with the work of the feast. 
And again, Mary's role as perhaps even an overseer of these things is reinforced by her words to them. Because she looks at them and says, hey, whatever he tells you to do, you need to do it. Because he's not in charge, right? I mean, she's probably the one in charge of telling them what to do. And, and, and what she's even insinuating in a way is you may, see, you may receive some interesting instructions. But you need to trust and you need to do whatever it is he tells you to do. And see, though Jesus declared to her that his time of complete revelation had not yet come, she is expressing her faith in him that he can do something incredible in this situation. Now, again, this is not an undue pressure or, or some type of arm twisting, right? Where, where Jesus says, my time has not yet come, and she says, well, he's going to do something anyway. No, what she's doing is simply expressing her faith in Jesus as the Son of God who can do these things. She certainly does not fully understand, but she trusts. Jesus never performed any miracle out of compulsion of man, but that which would serve in the ultimate and eternal plan of God. Mary was not a perfect person. She was not some form of deity to be worshipped. She was a regular, sinful human being like you and me. And she would need faith in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ, just like anyone else. She had a front row seat to the work of Jesus and his revelation of himself. And, And we, like Mary, must submit our wills and our trust to God alone. And we see now what Jesus does for this couple in accordance with God the Father's ultimate plan. In verses 6 through 11, we observe the miracle that takes place. Now there were were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. We see here in, in the miracle the instruments that are used for this. Because Jesus, seeing the need, begins to do an amazing work. There are six stone water pots that are there on the premises. And these water pots aren't just places where they went and got any, any old water. These are water pots that are vital importance to the Jews for their purification and ritual washings. We read in Mark chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat. Unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which which they have received and hold, like the washings of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. So these water pots, holding 20 to 30 gallons each, were used for the guests to cleanse themselves to be declared ceremonially clean. But it was not limited to the guest's use, but to the utensils and other things like that. They would be cleansed with that water. And so understand that this water, and it goes beyond just, just getting water out of the sink, okay, that, or, or that's been sitting in the, in the sink. It's actually, it's actually ceremonially unclean water because it's been used to, to cleanse away the, the impure and the, and the filth of the world of these their, their hands and their utensils and, and other things. So it's not, it's not just uncommon or unconventional that Jesus would use these water pots. It's unthinkable that you would use this to make things that people would then drink. But Jesus specializes in using the things that are unexpected to do the incredible. He certainly does this here. 
we see the transformational difference that take place. We, we saw that he told them to, to fill these pots with water, and he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water, it was made wine and did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. He said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, and then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. So the water pots are filled as Jesus instructed. And, And John makes it very clear that where were these water pots filled to? They were filled to the brim. That's an important thing. Because it's all water. There's nothing else in those pots but water. And so, having done this, Jesus instructs one to dip out a cup and take it to the master of the feast. Remember that saying that Mary said, whatever he tells you to do, do it? Okay, again, they understand what's going on here. That You're not supposed to take this water and drink it. Now, the master of the feast is the one who is in charge of overseeing the festivities. He kind of makes sure that, that everything's going as planned and, and that, that things were being, what was being served was appropriate for the guests. And so as they, they take this to him, to, to, for his approval, this miraculous thing occurs. The water changes into wine, and it impresses the master of the feast so much that he calls over the bridegroom because, presumably, he's done something incredible. It's noted... By John, that this man, by the way, is not told where it came from. That The servants all knew, but they didn't tell this guy where they got the water from. Because again, that's an unthinkable thing. And the master of the feast observes that traditionally, the best wine, the freshest or, or the best tasting is served first. And when the, ga- the guests have had their senses dulled by that, then the inferior wine is served. And, and literally, if you go back to the language here, okay, we do have to understand that literally what he is saying is that the inferior wine is brought out when guests have been inebriated by the first wine. Now, that is not saying the people at this wedding were drunk. What he's saying is this is what he's observed has happened. Because just because the common practice was to cut the, water, the wine back with the water, does that mean everybody did it? Well, no. But what he's saying here is, is well, hey, you, you've obviously saved the best to come out at this time, the, 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 ones that everyone, the wine that everyone is going to enjoy that tastes the best. And certainly, this wine was unlike that which anyone had ever seen or tasted, for it was made by a direct act of God. Think about all the steps that have to go into making a batch of this wine. That you have to you have to plant the, the seeds at some point, right? And the vines have to grow, and the grapes have to come in, and, and to all the water and the sun and the work, and then you have to, 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 to juice these grapes and it has to sit, and Jesus skipped every single part of that. And just taken water and and transformed it into a completely different substance. This is something that only God can do. That only God has the power of creation, because that's nothing short of what this is. This is creation. And this incredible work serves as the first actionable proof of who Jesus is. In fact, in verse 11, you see that. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. John states that this is the first sign Jesus performs. It is the first in his active ministry, and it's the first one of the eight that John records. John 
says that he has selected these specific signs to tell us who Jesus is. And and it's interesting that John uses that word, signs. And he'll use it over and over again. The beginning of signs, and, 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 and then when he refers to the things that he did. And that's a very, uh, the word means something different than miracle or a display of power. Instead, what it is, it speaks of a mark of authentication. What it is, it's a confirmation that Jesus really is who he says he is. That's what John is saying. This is a sign. This is a mark of the authenticity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the Messiah, that he created this wine out of something entirely different. And it's interesting to note the results that will come out of these signs. We're going to see them here today, but you're going to see them over and over again. Because there are many in our day, maybe you run into somebody like this. They say, well, you know, I would believe in God if he would show me a sign. You know, if I saw a miracle, or if I saw God do this, or this, or this, I would believe in God. And indeed, many a Christian has probably even said something like that, or asked God for a sign. But, but really, really notice here that John does not record throngs of people turning to Jesus. Who are the people who knew that day everything that Jesus had done? Well, well obviously Mary and his disciples and all of those servants saw what happened. But who does it say saw the sign and believed on Jesus? The disciples. It doesn't say the disciples and all of those servants and they went out and told all of these people. No, these, these five to six men who were already with Jesus and have come to know him and learn from him are the ones who believed in him. Even the most miraculous of works can do nothing for a hard heart that refuses to believe. Because what you and I believe has a great effect on everything else in our lives. The signs that they saw from Jesus confirmed their belief. It demonstrated further who Jesus was. Those signs didn't create belief in Jesus. But they continue to show that Jesus who Jesus is and what he says. It backs up what he says. But to those who were still without, there was no change in their lives. And this will be a recurring theme in the book of John, that you must make a choice of what you will do with Jesus. Now, the truth of who Jesus is doesn't change whether you believe him or not. You and I are faced with the choice to bow before him as our Lord or not. And one day you will bow. But if it is not in this life, it will be too late to alter your eternity. Jesus' works, as they go through the book of John, will draw increasingly varied responses. They did it in his day, and they do in our day as well. And so we all must answer the question, what will we do with Jesus? Will we own him as our Lord and Savior and see him for who he is? Or will we continue to reject him and disobey him? And and we'll see that as we wrap up the message today. But before we we close today's message, I just want to speak for just a minute on some thoughts about the the miracle's focus. As we stated, John chooses the word sign when he describes the miracles of Jesus, the, the mark of authentication. And the focus of the miracles of Jesus in the Gospel of John drives at proving Jesus is who he says he is, and he is worthy of our trust. 
And I just want to say that sometimes these miracles and things of Jesus are taken to make and made to serve other purposes in our lives. And this miracle is no different. Often people look upon this miracle as a justification to go out and consume at will alcoholic beverages. And the thinking is, hey, if Jesus turned water into wine, hey, it's okay for me to drink. That's the line of reasoning that's followed. But, but there is a great failure here to understand the historical context as well as the other words of Scripture. Because wine is mentioned throughout the Scripture. And yes, the positive qualities of wine are even mentioned throughout the Scripture. And it's obvious in the story that the wine that Jesus miraculously produced appealed to the taste buds of those who consumed it. But as I said earlier, there is great evidence that the wine of the ancient days was also cut back with a lot more water, reducing its alcoholic level. Was it still possible to get drunk? Well, absolutely. I showed you that a minute ago. Especially if wine is abused. And throughout Scripture, we read words of warning over and over again about the dangers of alcohol as well. Alcohol isn't just a drink, it is that which takes possession of our minds and lowers our inhibitions and causes us to do and say things we would not otherwise. And today's alcohol, alcoholic scene is filled with easy access and promises of having a good time and forgetting your troubles and worries, all if you would give yourself over to the substance that you may find a buzz or a promised relief. And Paul speaks very clearly about, though, about under whose influence Christians should be when he says in Ephesians 5.18, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, or, or the idea is wastefulness, but be filled with the Spirit. The life of a Christian should be always consumed and controlled by the Holy Spirit. We don't give ourselves over into anything else. And yes, I understand that the next statement is, well, I mean, it says don't get drunk. I would simply ask you, how do you know when that point is? Do you, do you rush headlong and say, well, now I know and I won't do that again? Is it ever right, right to do something wrong so you can try to do something right again? And I would tell you the answer is no. The Christian life isn't about being consumed with our personal freedoms. It's about serving the Lord with all we have. I understand, too, that each year... The alcoholic scene takes more victims, and there are those who struggle with the addicting effects of such drinks and wish they had never partaken of the first one. And I'm just going to tell you, this is why I personally, in my own life, take such a strong stance against it. And that's why our church historically has stood against it. And I would encourage you to examine the scriptures, the historical data, and the effects of such things. I would urge you not to take the wonder of the Savior's power as a license to serve your own selfish ends and fleshly desires, but to keep the main thing of the the, the miracle the main thing. That Jesus Christ shows us his creative power as God. Our eyes should be filled with the wonder of that creative power that's found in him. He is the Messiah, owning all power over creation. Jesus' transformation of substances with nothing more than his word and unspoken thoughts displays his creative power as God. And beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus did something that day that only God could do. He proved to those who saw him work that he is God. That amazing power calls for our response. The displayed power of our creator draws out of every man his response. You and I cannot remain neutral when it comes to God. We either embrace and accept and believe him or we don't. We reject him. And there is no middle ground. 
So what do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that he did good things? Do you believe that he said a lot of nice stuff? Do you believe that he taught good practices or even lived a moral life? Or do you believe that he is the son of God? He is God himself. He is the savior of the world and that he lived and died for you. Because what you believe about Jesus comes out in how you live your life. If you believe he is the son of God and he is the source of eternal life, then you will seek out personal salvation from sin and its penalty in him alone. Whether you believe it or not doesn't change the reality of who you are and what he is. Jesus came to redeem men from their sin. And he invites you to forsake your sin and its eternal destiny in hell and find new life in him and eternity in heaven. Let your belief in him transform your heart and your life and your eternity today. And Christian, if you truly believe in Jesus Christ and has taken him as Savior, the same truth applies. We have to ask ourselves this question. Is what I say I believe about Jesus Christ as my Savior and the Lord of my life shown out in the way I live my life? Or do we just say we believe Jesus and do the things when it's convenient? When we're not going to be looked down on, when, when the certain people are watching, when, when it doesn't affect what I wanted to do with my life, so to speak. Too often we are so caught up in what is allowed that we don't ask what is best and what is godly. Our lives must instead be consumed by living for the Lord. So let the power of God displayed through Jesus take hold of your life and transform your life in obedience to him today and every day. Father, we thank you so much for the word of God and thank you for the eyewitness account of, the, of John who has recorded what he saw that day. It is such an amazing thing, Lord, to, to hear the words of a man who was so amazed and awed by who you are. Lord, we ask that you would help us to also be equally amazed by Jesus. Thank you for sending him to live the life that we could not live, that he could die the death that we could not die to save us from our sins. Lord, I ask that today you would continue to work in hearts to draw those who do not know you as Savior to yourself. May they humble themselves and find their eternity settled. Lord, I pray for Christians who are here today. Lord, that you would help us to understand that, that what we say we believe isn't really belief until we have taken it so far into our core it just naturally comes out in our lives. Help us to continue to internalize the truth of God's word. Help us to continue to battle sin with your help, with every fiber of our being. Help us to live out our sanctification each and every day. Lord, whatever sin we're wrestling with, we pray that you would give us, again, humility to take the steps to forsake it, that we can walk with you. We ask now that you would watch over and protect us as we go from this place. Bring us here together tonight to worship you. In your name we pray. Amen.